Well, you'll see that this service this evening is a bit different, uh, an installation service for a <clears throat> new pastor, though Pastor Fernandez isn't a new pastor, new to us pastor. Um, but uh, you'll see it's a little bit different as you look at the order of service that's there in front of you. I'll begin with uh, scripture reading, and then I'll essentially then turn it over to our Presbytery Commission that was appointed by the Presbytery to come and minister to us and properly and officially install Pastor Fernandez as our assistant pastor. So with that, I'd ask if you take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Romans, uh, chapter 8. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8 would be the, uh, the text we'll, for the first sermon. will come from that passage, beginning at verse 31 is where I'll be reading. Romans 8, 31. Please give attention to God's holy word. I'll read to the end of the chapter. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who was at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. I'll ask Brother G.W. Fisher from our Tacoma Church to open the word of life to us this evening. First, I want to say that it is a great blessing to be here, especially on this occasion uh, for uh, Pastor Steele and Elder Newman and myself, and also for uh, Pastor Lehman to, to be here and to have this opportunity to be with you and to participate in this installation service tonight. And you did hear Dr. Pine correctly. There are three messages. So uh, get comfortable, and uh, we'll try to uh, not... Uh, outdo one another, but try to do what uh, is rightly to be done in this situation. So your Bibles uh, or devices are already open to Romans chapter 8. Let's uh, look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless us now as we spend this time in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through your truth, that, Lord, uh, you would take this occasion in which this man who has served so long and so well is installed in a new work to, Lord, further glorify yourself and to equip him and to use him for your glory. We thank you, Lord, for this church, for its faithfulness, for its love for you, for its constant hospitality, 
And Lord, we ask you to bless uh, these people uh, under the under your word tonight. May they be fed by it in Jesus' name. Amen. So my first question is, what are you people up to? What are you folks doing? This is supposed to be uh, the new era of being satisfied with less. And uh, you're supposed to be lowering your expectations. That's what we're being told. We need to be satisfied with less and lowering our expectations. And any of us who lived through the Jimmy Carter years uh, know that that sounds very familiar and a little bit ominous, that uh, kind of a, a statement. In addition, this is the age where Christians are supposed to be pulling back, ashamed of their privilege, uh, giving up their antiquated doctrines and backing off of their troublesome values and those rules for life that you, you Christians have. And what are you doing? You as a church are adding on a new assistant to go to the southern part of the state to preach and teach the word of God without compromise and to build a new church. That's not what you're supposed to be doing now. You're supposed to be pulling in. You're supposed to be pulling back. You're supposed to be timid and, and slow to respond. I just would ask, what's wrong with you people? And you're clearly not in step with the times. Thank the Lord for that. I'm glad that you're not. Let me tell you of another time when dedicated believers weren't in step with the, the times as well. Dr. Robert Barnes lived in England about the time of the Reformation. He was a scholar and a preacher. He found himself drawn by the word of God into the Reformation doctrines and cause. And he used his pulpit to preach the Reformation doctrines of salvation by grace, uh, through Christ alone, by faith alone. And this created an atmosphere of contention. Uh, and that resulted in what became known uh, as one historian put it, as the pulpit wars in Cambridge, England. And those pulpit wars were among the men who ministered and taught there. So one man would preach a sermon condemning Luther and the Reformation, its doctrines, and then another minister, like Barnes, would get up right away and go into his pulpit and would show the validity of those doctrines and the power of the truth and the weakness and and the departure from the word of God that the Roman Catholic dogma represented, and they were having these pulpit wars there in Cambridge. And it was assumed to be a spiritual academic battle, um, being waged in the open arena of free ideas and within the context of the church and academia. And with each side presenting its position, uh, to the people. And the belief among the reformers was, we'll preach the truth, and eventually people will see what the truth is, and that's how we'll settle this issue and, and bring peace. And it'll, the falsehood of this other dogma will be revealed. Well, Barnes delighted in the word of God, and it brought him and others a great deal of joy to, to be preaching those things, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had that... Uh, true sense of security that comes from uh, <clears throat> peace, really, that comes from knowing that what you're engaged in is the right thing. And uh, he saw the people embracing the gospel, and he saw them going from being drones, carrying out the superstitious mandates of the bishops, to living, breathing men and women of faith. And they rejoiced to see that happen. 
Then one day, Barnes was going about his daily affairs in what was known as the Convocation House at at Cambridge. (coughs) And suddenly, excuse me, a sergeant of arms seized him. And he placed him under arrest. And his quarters were searched for works by Luther and other German reformers. Barnes was taken to London, and he was locked up in the infamous Fleet Prison. A short while after, he was transferred to an even more notorious prison, uh, the only one of its kind, run by Augustinian monks in, in London, to, wait, to await his execution. And Barnes managed to escape from the friars, and he fled to continental Europe, and he only returned to England after Henry VIII adopted the Reformation. And Barnes, because he was a gifted man and knowledgeable in the scriptures, he soon gained Henry VIII's favor, and he was even an ambassador under King Henry VIII for a time. But as some of you know, Henry VIII tended to be a fickle individual, and just as Barnes was enjoying renewed popularity and freedom and being able to again bring these doctrines forth, fresh and indistinct accusations were brought against him, and he was again suddenly, surprisingly arrested. This time he was imprisoned in the Tower of London, and without a trial or a hearing, he was condemned to death. And Robert Barnes died at the stake, not ever knowing what the charges were against him, let alone having an opportunity to defend himself. At the stake, Barnes delivered a calm protest, He declared that he was a victim of injustice and then gave a careful account of his faith in Jesus Christ. He asked finally the executioner if he had any article of crime against him for which he was being condemned. And the executioner said, no, no. Now think of this, beloved. Here you are about to be subjected to capital punishment in a most painful and gruesome way, really, You can make no defense because there are no crimes. Your enemy simply wants you dead, and so you're going to die. He then asked if anyone present knew of any reason or if anyone could point to any heresy that he had ever embraced. There was complete silence in the crowd. He then said that he prayed that the perpetrators of his death would be forgiven the crime. He prayed that all involved in any way from false accusations to his condemnation be heartily, freely, and charitably forgiven. Now, I've shared with you Barnes's story today, this evening, because it's a testimony to how suddenly and dramatically the Christian situation can change. Now, not every change is as dramatic and as final as this one, but we can go from a place of peace and freedom and liberty into a place of trial and tribulation very quickly in this world. It may be a telephone call. It may be an email, a text, a trip to the doctor, uh, an unexpected pain, a distracted moment at the wheel, a legislative action, an executive order, a mandate, a moment of unguarded weakness, a lie or a truth spoken about us. All sorts of things could carry us from peace and contentment into anxiety and discomfort. But you know, this story is also a great tribute 
to the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Even in the most trying times, in the testimony of scripture and the witness of history, we can see that no matter how hard or how difficult Satan and the world make for it, for Christians to function, God works uninterrupted in the establishment of his kingdom. And in the midst of all the turmoil and all the agitation created by these forces, the believer knows that he or she is secure because we have this wonderful position that we rest in the love of the one who's promised to keep us as the apple of his eye and of the shadow of his wing. So all this turmoil can be going around us for all different reasons, but we have that, that confidence because we sit there in the, in the center of his love. Now, here in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes something that is very similar, I should say very familiar to most mature Christians. Um, we have read a good part of it that Dr. Pine did for you earlier, and I want to just get down to the part where he talks about um, the tribulations and the distresses that uh, cannot separate us from the love of Christ. The blessed state of security that you find as Christians is the result of God's love fixed on you. That's why you feel secure and at peace. His care and his love for you isn't to be determined. It's never determined by outward circumstances. It's to be determined by his promises, by his promises to love and to work all things together for our good and to permit nothing at all to ever separate us from that love. Now, when I say we're never to judge things, there, there may be times when we're on the wrong course and we, we need to acknowledge that because the Lord interrupts us in that course and corrects us and, and shows us what's right. But it's never away from him. It's also important that we shouldn't rest our hopes in the blessing of God's love for us on the grounds of how much we love him. Never a good test for me to judge how much God loves me by how much I love him. And it's not a good measuring stick for you either because he loved us before we ever loved him. So there's no, no there's, there's just not a fit measuring yardstick to, to test that by. If you're in Christ by faith, you are loved by God in him. And the gauge of the timing, or the gauge of the thing, rather, is his word, his promise, and the guarantee of its inseparable nature. Uh, it all has to do with his own glorious person and character, beloved. And I believe that it's wise to pause from time to time, especially in the midst of the rancor and all the noise and the uneasiness and the burdens of this present hour, and, and just reflect on what it means to sit in the heart of God's love through Jesus Christ. You're a part of that church that he died to present to himself in splendor, without wrinkle, holy, and without blemish. And what an extraordinary blessing it is to be the objects of love like his and know that nothing can open a gap between us and that love. Now, just quickly here, when you notice that Peter, or rather when Paul wishes to convey to you the security 
and the inseparable nature of Christ's love. He touches on all the things which a Christian might experience in this world, which cannot, despite all appearances or fears, create a rift or a chasm between you and that love. And notice just how strongly he puts it. He says, what else? What can separate you from the love of God? What else can separate you? And he then names them one by one. And they're just like so many boogeymen rearing up to come between us and our sense of the love of Christ for us. And then he just knocks them down one by one. So he says, is it this one? No. How about this one? No. How about that? No. None of these things can separate you from the love of Christ. And I just want to touch very briefly on the three that are mentioned in the, in the bulletin this evening. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or constriction separate us from the love of Christ? And the idea here is a continued pressure or vexation without, from without. It's a term used to express the pain of childbirth as well as the trials of Joseph. And Paul uses it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble or our affliction or our tribulation, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we, so that we despaired even of life. This idea of tribulation has its background, the idea of being run over by a heavy weight, and it can be considered a generic term for any serious difficulty that might arise in your life. And it's hard for you and me in modern America to imagine the plight of the believers in the, in the early days of the New Testament. It's getting a little easier, I think, but it's hard for us. But remember, believers were looked on as the off-scouring of the world. Paul said that we were reviled, we were defamed, we were like the off-scouring of the world ostracized from family and friends, shut out of jobs, mocked and ridiculed. They'd lost all the admiration and the so-called love that the world had to offer. But they were not separated from the love of Jesus Christ. Robert Barnes is one of the many witnesses to this truth. And there are those in this present day whose testimony could be brought forward and uh, show that it is, continues to be true. The pressure isn't always physical. Throughout history, Christians have been offered bribes as well as torture to deny and desert Christ. And they felt the pressure applied by promises of ease and the hope of reward. But by enduring that temptation, they found themselves enveloped in the love of Christ and rewarded in a way that nothing in this world could ever hope to match. The second one is affliction or calamity. Who has separated us from the love of Christ shall distress, affliction, or calamity. This relates to the feeling that comes from being closed in, whether literally or figuratively. It's a stronger word than tribulation. And it relates to the anxiety or the depression caused by forced isolation. And the feeling that we're at a loss to know what to do. Robinson describes it as a sense of difficulty, painful, and perplexing circumstances. Even when the circumstances seem hopeless, the love of God in Christ is reaching through those circumstances to give hope to those who are his. Not in itself or in the outward circumstances, but in himself as our Savior. You have a very graphic picture of the plight and the comfort of the Lord's love 
in the in the testimony of the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 and verses 7 through 10 where he talks about the thorn in his flesh you remember that passage well I'm sure he asked to be relieved of it three times the Lord said no my grace is sufficient for you my strength is made perfect in weakness therefore most gladly I would rather boast in my infirmity says Paul than the power that the power of Christ may rest upon me Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions in distresses. This word, our word here, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And the third one is persecutions, which is a much more familiar word to us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall persecution or hounding? And this is the idea of pursuit with the intent of destroying or injuring. Uh, that began with Abel, and it's never ceased down to this very day. Tribulation falls on all men, but persecution is specifically tied to one's relationship and confession to the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that helped men and women like Dr. Barnes endure the trials of persecution is, as Calvin says, a firm persuasion that the kindness and love of God towards them was neither severed nor lost, even during the heaviest afflictions. I want to close with this quote from John Calvin this evening. Paul does not simply say that there's nothing which can tear God away from his love to us, but he means that the knowledge and lively sense of the love which he testifies to us is so vigorous in our hearts that it always shines in the darkness of afflictions. For as clouds, though they obscure the clear brightness of the sun, do not yet wholly deprive us of its light, so God in adversities sends forth through the darkness the rays of his favor. Lest temptation should overwhelm us with despair, nay, our faith, supported by God's promises, as by wings, makes its way upward to heaven through all the intervening obstacles." Tonight, we mark and celebrate the love of God for us by sweeping away the present dark clouds and enjoying the brightness of his love shining on us. The bringing of a long-loved brother closer to our hearts. The establishing of a new work for Christ on the frontier of darkness. And the blessed prospect of seeing the work of the kingdom steeped in the love of Christ, growing and prospering. It's light and darkness. It's a testimony of Christ's love for us, even in these times of uh, uh, repression and turmoil and difficulty. What are you doing? What are you doing? You're doing what God has called you to do, and God's working through you to bring it to pass. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage and for the promise it gives us of your love for us through Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray that tonight as we go through this uh, service together, that Lord, we will mark this is the testimony of Christ's love for us. It's the testimony of Christ's love for Henry and Cindy. It's the testimony of Christ's love for this church and its people. It's the testimony of our Savior's love for McCall and the needs there. And Father, it's a testimony of your love for our presbytery and our denomination. And we thank you for it, Lord. 
And we pray that we might revel in it tonight for Christ's sake, in whose name we pray. Amen. So this is the, that was the general message. Um, now we're going to proceed with uh, reading the call to uh, Pastor Fernandez. Um, and uh, uh, Elder Willis is going to come forward and do that. And then we'll proceed from there to ask, uh, put a series of questions, first to Pastor Fernandez and then to you, the congregation. And then following that, we'll have uh, the two charges, one to uh, the minister uh, by Pastor Steele and then to the congregation by Elder Newman. <laughs> this is the invalid presbytery meeting. The congregation of Providence Bible Presbyterian Church, being on sufficient grounds, well satisfied of the ministerial qualifications of you, Henry Fernandez, and having good hopes that your ministrations in the gospel will be profitable to our spiritual interests and those of the larger kingdom of God, do earnestly call and desire you to undertake the office of assistant pastor with the specific duties of serving as an evangelist and church planter in McCall, Idaho, and environs promising you in the discharge of your duty all proper support, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord. And although you have stated that your material needs are to be supplied through supplemental means independently and through your own labors, we desire that you may be free from worldly care and avocations, and we thus promise and oblige ourselves to pay you the sum of $100 in regular monthly payments during the time of your being and continuing the regular assistant pastor of this church, together with four weeks of vacation each year. Thank you, Elder Wells. Pastor Fernandez, would you join me up here, please? some circumstances we'd have you sit down there and answer these questions but I want to make sure you're on camera for the folks that are watching live with us. These are the questions that uh, I am ordered by our form of government to put to you brother. Are you now willing to take the charge of this congregation as their pastor agreeable to your declaration when you accepted its call? I am. Do you conscientiously believe and declare as far as you know your own heart and in taking upon you this charge, you are influenced by a sincere desire to promote the glory of God and the good of his church. I do. Do you solemnly promise that by the assistance of the grace of God, you will endeavor to faithfully, uh, you will endeavor faithfully to discharge all the duties of a pastor to this congregation and will be careful to maintain a deportment in all respects, becoming a minister of the gospel of Christ, agreeable to your ordination engagements. I do. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you. Having received satisfactory answer to those questions, I now propose to you, the congregation, I'm going to ask you to stand. 
And those of you who are members, you are directed by the form of government to raise your right hand. And I'm going to put these questions to you as I do. Do you, the people of this congregation, continue to profess your readiness to receive whom you have called to be your minister? Do you promise to receive the word of truth from his mouth with meekness and love? And do you promise to yield him all that honor, encouragement, and obedience in the Lord to which his office, according to the word of God and the constitution of this church, entitles him? Do you promise to encourage him in his arduous labor and to assist his endeavors for your instruction and spiritual edification? And do you engage to continue with him while he is your pastor that competent worldly maintenance which you have promised and whatever else you may see needful for the honor of religion and his comfort among you? You may be seated. And now um, we'll uh, have the charges that are to be brought. And the first charge comes to us from Reverend Randy Steele. The charge to the minister. The text of this charge this evening is uh, Matthew chapter 14, uh, looking at verses 1 through 12 in particular, looking at two issues out of uh, verse 4. <clears throat> the scripture says this, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying uh, to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they regarded him as a prophet. The passage goes on, of course, through verse 12, uh, but that's as far as we'll read uh, for this evening. Uh, shall we pray together? Uh, grant us, O God, uh, your favor. Uh, look upon us as uh, your church and congregation assembled in uh, this place with grace. Uh, be merciful to us. Set your blessing upon your church and in particular upon uh, your servant and uh, his wife, Henry and Cindy, and uh, send them forth from this place with joy and gladness, the fullness of the Spirit uh, to do the work of the kingdom and the gospel uh, to which you have uh, called them. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. My brother in Christ, uh, my colleague in the gospel, my friend in life, uh, I have waited over 30 years for the opportunity to charge you in public. <laughs> And with this experience this evening, along with Simeon of old, I am ready for the Lord to dismiss me in peace because of this. Uh, 
On behalf of the Great Western Presbytery, I am uh, to issue a charge to you as newly installed assistant pastor in this congregation and, of course, within the bounds of our presbytery. Obviously, as you can see, I've chosen a strange uh, passage of Scripture uh, for doing that, but there's a lot going on in this passage. There's a, a lot of... Uh, characters that are in the passage, but the one I want to um, emphasize and uh, consider this evening has to do, of course, with John the Baptizer. Uh, you know as well as I do that uh, John was uh, the last of the prophets of God under the Old Covenant. Uh, we're introduced to him uh, in the pages of uh, the New Testament. We find him explained to us in the Gospels. Uh, but he's in that period of time historically when, of course, he is the one who is preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Messiah to come, uh, who is making a transition of the church from Old Covenant to New Covenant, from Old Testament to New Testament. And as such, uh, John, uh, in his ministry, closes out uh, the Old Testament, and he finishes as uh, the last great prophet under the Old Covenant of God. Uh, my brother, you have uh, served as a minister of uh, the gospel for uh, many years, uh, and I would say to you from the scriptures that uh, you stand in uh, John's prophetic shadow. Uh, you have been gifted and called of God uh, to be the messenger of God in this generation and to declare the gospel and the word of God's truth. And as such, uh, you are a prophet of the new covenant. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ has acknowledged your gifting and they have, uh, the church has acknowledged uh, your call from God and has ordained you for decades uh, that you should declare the words of eternal life uh, to this generation. And uh, that makes you uh, a prophet of God. Uh, you are a new covenant prophet within the context of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. As uh, such, of course, then we look at some of the things that are true about John the baptizer, and two in particular that I want to bring up and recognize that he ministered within the context of these two commitments. And I would say to you this evening, and I would charge you in the name of the Lord Jesus, uh, that you are to do the same. And what John, we find in this text, has done is that he has pursued ministry in the fear of God. We look in the text in uh, verse uh, 3, Herod has seized John, he has bound him, he's put him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. Herod Antipas has taken uh, his brother's uh, wife as his own personal consort. And in verse 4, we're told, for John had been saying to him, that is, Herod Antipas, it is not lawful for you to have her. Uh, John has been saying to Herod, uh, this goes against uh, the law of God. Uh, you are in sin. Uh, you are acting as a covenant breaker. And uh, you are um, in danger of uh, the judgment of 
God. And when we look at the message that he has given to the person that he is speaking to, we have to recognize that this is a boldness that is surely indicative of ministering within uh, a true fear of the Lord. And of course, this was at a time in the history of the church when uh, personal uh, discretion on the part of the powers that be is over life and death. And we know how this passage ends, uh, that uh, Herod uh, orders uh, the murder of John, and uh, John dies uh, because of the message that he delivers in uh, the fear of God. Thanks be to the Lord that we're not old covenant prophets, but uh, we are prophets of the new covenant and we don't have to deal with that sort of thing in uh, this particular day. If you were to meet, for example, the uh, president of the United States and if this was your uh, conviction and you said to him, uh, sir, you are living in sin, you are breaking covenant with God, you are pursuing unrighteousness, uh, you might have to endure being called a dog-faced pony soldier, but that's about it, because that's the day in which we live. But in Matthew chapter 14, if you declare God's law to a government official and that official is offended, you could certainly die, which is exactly what John did in his sacrifice. John was surely living out in his ministry as a prophet of God. What Jesus has taught in Matthew 10, chapter 20, uh, chapter uh, verse 28, when he said, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There's a sense in which Jesus, as he speaks this way, is saying to us that our response to a world that would threaten us with death uh, because of a faithful proclamation of the gospel, our response to the world should be something on the order of saying, is that all you've got? You can take the life from my body. That's all that you can do. That's it. There used to be a time when faithful Christians were known as God-fearers. We're past that time. Nobody talks in those kinds of terms any longer. It used to be to say she is a God-fearing woman, he's a God-fearing man, but we don't think of that. And we don't think like that. Even in the church, we don't think in terms of being a person Uh, who lives and works and ministers within the context of the fear of God. And yet the Bible contains over 150 references to uh, such fear of the Lord. Psalm 103 verse 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. Psalm 112 verse 1 says, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Or the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2 17 says, Straightforwardly fear God. And in fact, what we find in the scriptures is even Messiah himself lived and ministered and worked in the fear of the Lord. And he delighted in that. It is in Isaiah's prophecy of Isaiah 11 beginning in verse 1 where we read this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, 
the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Verse three, and he will delight in the fear of God. Even Jesus lived and ministered within such a context. And yet when we speak about these things, we need to make sure that we are able to distinguish between what it means to be afraid of God and to be ministering and working in our generation in the fear of God. Uh, Moses does this distinction. He brings it forth in Exodus chapter 20 when he leads the nation of uh, Israel to uh, the foot of Mount Sinai. And you remember the story of God's presence is on the top of the mountain and it is filled with smoke and covered with dark clouds and there are flashes of lightning and the whole mountain is shaking. A sound of a loud trumpet and the people come to Moses and they say, you speak to me. We don't, let, we don't want to hear directly from God himself. And then Moses says this in verse 20. He says to the people, do not be afraid for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you will not sin. Moses is making a distinction between being afraid of God and living and ministering in the fear of God. To be afraid of God will lead to nothing more than an outward acquiescence uh, to his law, but fearing God will lead you to true righteousness. It was the Puritan John Bunyan who in some of his writings talked about bondage fear and filial fear. Sinclair Ferguson has picked up on that when he uh, writes about uh, servile fear and filial fear. By servile fear, he's talking about the kind of fear which a slave would feel towards a harsh and an unyielding master to be afraid of God is that. But a filial fear is a reverential awe for a loving father. And it is such reverence and awe and fear of the Lord that every Christian needs and every prophet of God uh, must have. Uh, thus it is John Murray who has says the fear of God is the soul of godliness. And that's what your people in the call need to see from you. They need to hear the faithful proclamation of the word of God from a faithful prophet of the new covenant. And they need to learn how to fear God in reverence and awe as they listen to your teaching and as they watch you um, in your life and uh, in your ministry. And this is surely one of the greatest uh, challenges that we have in the church um, in our day. I don't know how many times you and I have uh, spoken about such matters and concerns uh, for the church that in the evangelical church of our day, there is no longer any fear of God. And in the worship uh, that is offered in such churches, there is no fear of the Lord. And what that has done, it, is, it has bred a, a commonness and a familiarity which ignores God and his majesty 
and in his holiness and his dignity. Christians today in the church see God as their companion, uh, their buddy, uh, almost their peer, but they never see God as the all-consuming fire of righteousness and holiness that he really is. And in the worship of the churches of our day, coming and assembling in the presence of God, there is no amazement of who he is. And there is uh, no sense of wonder of being in the presence of the living God. There is no veneration and there is no true worship. But you will see to it that that is not the case in McCall. The second thing that is true for John that must be true for you, my brother, is that while he lived and ministered in the fear of the Lord, he was not afraid of any man. In verse 4, again, of our text, Matthew writes it this way. He says, For John had been saying to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have Herodias. That verb for had been saying in the Greek text is in the imperfect tense, which you know Uh, refers to a repetition of action. The point being here is that John didn't just happen to run into Herod Antipas one day and say, by the way, since we're here, I want you to understand you're living in sin. But the scriptures are saying to us, he went back to him repeatedly over and over and over and over again, calling him uh, to repentance uh, for his sin. Uh, He was the great example of Proverbs 28.1, where we are told that the righteous are as bold as a lion. One of the things that we see about Herod in this text is that he was full of fear of men. He's a civil leader where uh, John is a spiritual leader. Uh, Herod was leading in uh, an earthly kingdom where John is, of course, preparing for the kingdom of heaven. Um, on earth and yet the scriptures in the passage teach us that Herod was afraid of the multitudes he was afraid of his birthday party guests he was afraid of the oath that he had taken and Mark 6 says that he was afraid of John but when we look at his life and the decisions that he's making how he is living and the order that he gave to murder innocent John we also see uh, that Herod had no fear of God he was afraid of men but he had no fear of the Lord. John is just the opposite of that, and so must you be as a prophet of God. Uh, You must minister in the fear of the Lord, and you must uh, pursue such ministry having no fear of men. You have embarked, my brother, on a daunting and challenging task to bring the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ unfailingly and faithfully uh, to the area of McCall. And I charge you tonight, go in the fear of God and do not be afraid of any man. This is the word of the Lord. We have in the program right now that we will we were going to sing. I'm going to wait till after Brother Noonan 
uh, presents uh, his charge to us for the sake of uh, sermon audio, which likes to have no music on the, the broadcast. So I'll edit it down, and then we won't have to worry about the music uh, in in uh, the sermon audio uh, recording for those that want to uh, listen to it later. So, Elder Noonan, if you'd come right now, that'd be great. Thank you. Oh, yes. It's right on the top there. It's on the bumper. On top. Oh, you're by. In the way. <laughs> I thought you said water. Good evening. For those of you that have your Bibles with you, I hope it's all of you. Would you turn to Romans 15, verses 30 through 33? Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we sit here this evening in this installation service in the wonder of your love for us. In the wonder of your faithfulness to your flock and in your call to Pastor Fernandez to do the work in McCall. So Father, we ask that you bless this time and bless this gathering in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a time when Charles Spurgeon was asked by a secular newspaper, what charged him up? What gave him power? How in the world could he stand in front of thousands of people and give the messages that he gave, give the sermons that he gave, the strength that he showed? And it's documented that he told, he told this um, reporter, it's all in the furnace room. And the guy looked at him and asked, furnace room? What they didn't know is every time Spurgeon was preaching, he had a group of his parishioners that met in the furnace room of the church and prayed for him as he was preaching. Every time he preached, his people were praying for him. And that's what lit the fire under him. That's what enabled a man, by the way, with no PA system, to preach to 2,000 people in a, in a gathering hall, preaching the message of the Lord with faithfulness. They were praying for him. His people 
prayed for him constantly. I want you to know that I've been a deacon for a while and I've been an elder for a while. And one thing, if you haven't noticed it, and all you pastors can, you can stand, you can sit there and pretend like this is not true. Your pastors will never ask you for help. They will labor. Their wives will suffer. They will take those two o'clock in the morning calls from someone. They'll go to the hospital. They'll get up the next morning and preach, but they will never come to you for help. They won't ask. So it's up to you to offer. It's up to you to be the people in the furnace room. It's up to you to pray for him. Pray for Pastor Fernandez. Diligently pray for him. All the times. Keep in mind that this is the Apostle Paul that has, is urging his brethren to pray for him. This is the man that was flogged, was caned, was shipwrecked, was left to die, and finally was condemned and died in Rome for the cause of the scripture. And the thing he coveted most was the prayers of Christ's people. Because that sustained him, that got him through those times. It strengthened him, and it'll do the same thing for my brother Henry. And by the way, not just Henry, for all the other pastors and their wives. A pastor's wife, for those of you who are pastor's wives, you can laugh if you want to, but a pastor's wife bears a special burden. And I'll tell you the kind of things that happened. You know, you know, God tells us that we're sheep. Do you know why? Sheep are stupid. They stink and they wander away. But one of the things that the, that the Romans always wondered about, about the Roman shepherds is the sheep always knew the voice of their, their master. That was unheard of. But the, the, the sheep of Israel heard the voice of their masters. And if, for those of you that have ever read any history of the time, the Romans marveled at the, at the shepherds of Israel. And one of the things that they always said about them was they always looked unkempt because they never slept. They would never leave their sheep and they had the heart of a lion to go rescue a lamb anywhere that lamb went. And that's what our under shepherds are to us. They won't say it, but they, go th they and their wives go through terrible times for us as, as their sheep. And what does Paul ask? He asks for prayer. Because he knows the power of prayer. He knows that prayer fuels that fire. He knows that, pr that prayer is what binds us together. That prayer is what 
the Lord wants from us as a new covenant sacrifice. And so that prayer on behalf of Henry as he labors in McCall, prayer for Cindy as she stands by his side and ministers to the women there. Prayer, pray for them, pray for him because I'll be praying for him. Most of you don't know it. There's probably only a couple people in here that know it that meant that quite a few years ago, our church went through a church split. And our church, Providence Presbyterian Church in Albuquerque, would not be there today as it is if it wasn't for Henry Fernandez coming alongside of me. He was there when we needed him. So we need to be there when he needs us in prayer. So we need to be in the furnace room. We need to be praying for our pastors. And in particular this night, I charge you to be praying for Henry Fernandez as he ministers in McCall. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, as we sit here this evening, we praise you and bless your holy name. Father, we ask that you would hear our prayers this evening for Henry and Cindy. And Father, we raise up prayers for the people in McCall. Father, we ask that that religion and faith be firmly rooted in the words of the truth that Henry will preach in McCall. We ask that, that our hearts would be open and the hearts of McCall would be open. We ask that we would be faithful. We'd be faithful to pray we would be faithful to intercede. We would be faithful to come alongside of our brother, our pastor, and our friend, Henry Fernandez. Father, we ask that you'd protect him in this. We ask that you would keep a watchful eye over him, that you would strengthen him in the power of the Lord as he faces worldly and spiritual forces. We ask that you be with him in times of pain. We ask that you would be with him in times of sorrow. But Father, we also pray and ask that you would let him see the fruit of the labors of his ministry in the name of our Lord Jesus. We ask that in the words of the psalmist, that as we pray for our brother, that he would be one that would sing for joy to the Lord and shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before you and in your presence with thanksgiving and shout joyfully to him with psalms. For you, Father, are a great God and a great King above all gods. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen.